Welcome to the Recovery Lab podcast. We're glad you were able to join us. Recovery Lab hopes to destigmatize addiction and normalize recovery. Our platform provides an avenue to share the many stories of those that have recovered from addiction, providing for the listener the most basic antidote to addiction. Hope. All right, everybody, we're back. This is, it's technically episode number 56, but it ought to be, I guess, episode 54, take two. Uh, fortunately, our guest today, Brian O'Shea, has uh, been gracious enough to give us yet another hour or so of his time yes, thank since you. we had a, a technical snafu. Anyway, uh, I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. Thank we you for buying me. We are the Recovery Lab. Thank you for buying me some time, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, thank you. Oh, honored to be here. Honored to be with you guys. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, I feel like I'm cheating a little bit since I know more about you and your life since the first episode that <laughs> went awry. But let's just start where we start with everybody. Tell us a little bit about your life. I mean, you've, you know so many interesting characters and have some interesting tales. We're just gonna we're just gonna shoot the shit for an hour and talk about recovery and how it benefits us and where we came from and how we got where we are. Oh, beautiful, beautiful! I'm very grateful to be here. Yes. You both are doing very honorable work. This recovery lab does honorable work. We appreciate that. Thank you. Very honorable. So. Poor Irish immigrants in the Bronx. And it was interesting. We we kind of lived very much in the same neighborhood in Parkchester. And there were branches of the family that had people that were not alcoholic. And that was fascinating to me. And they were high functionality folks. And they were named uh, Humphrey and Sullivan. And it was interesting. For me, my mother's father died of alcoholism in a snowdrift with a bottle in his hand when she was four. My father's father was detoxed in Towns Hospital. We have a note signed by Dr. Silkworth, who wrote the first page of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was in Alateen. I was even briefly in a thing called Alatod, and when I say that, it's funny People laugh. They say, oh, that's funny. It was real. <laughs> Alatot? Yeah, it was real. Yeah, in the wow. 50s and the 60s. And what it was was little tiny children coloring. And, uh, every you know, the adults are all in meetings. Sometimes mommy and daddy do bad things, but they're good people, that kind of thing. Yeah, and we just did. It was a little meeting while your mom and dad were in their meetings. You know, it's no big deal. <clears throat> a lot of coloring books. So Alateen was an interesting experience for me. Like I can remember my uncle Kieran once was volunteering for the Bill W. dinner. And at that moment, Bill Wilson's alive and Lois Wilson's alive. And he's volunteering and he put me in a room basically full of Alateen people. And, you know, I knew something important was happening. But, you know, you're, you're a child. You, know, you, don't, you don't really get the whole thing. But I do remember my father's first anniversary in AA. And Did your father know Bill Wilson? Oh, no, no. no. Okay. But my, my uncle, but I mean, you know, 
when I first uh, was really around a lot of those folks in the 70s, a lot of them had been to a lot of meetings with him. And, you know, some of them knew him very well. Was he treated generally? I mean, you know, I know that in 12-step programs, there's a significant in, uh encouragement to view everyone the same yes you know nobody's better than the other Mm -hmm. you hear a whole lot about you know oh how long have you been sober well so how long have i been up today that kind of thing (laughs) and you know and you usually hear people that have been sober for 50 years say shit like that you know was bill wilson generally thought of uh he's effectively been canonized as far as and should be and should be yeah uh was he treated kind of with that reverence even that far back? There were three opinions. One was people that I don't want to talk about him. One was I knew him. We went to meetings together. He helped a lot of people. And then one were people that did sort of dine out on the fact that they had been in meetings with him. The thing with him is he brought so many people to their first meeting, but it's valuable to remember he never took anyone through the steps. Dr. Bob is the one who took people through the steps. Bill Wilson took a lot of people to their first meeting, but without Bill Wilson, we would have, I don't believe he would have as quickly created an international fellowship. Right. He really did that. He kind of played to that character defect of his the need for fame the need for achievement the need for accomplishment i can see how he was able to weaponize that and use it for good oh yeah i mean the uh the saturday evening post article the meeting with rockefeller um and it's always said we needed both you know if dr bob had his way there would have been three meetings one in Bill Wilson's house, one in his house in Akron, and one more meeting. If Bill Wilson had his way, he would have sold AA to Subway. You know, and, you know, we, we needed, we need, so we needed the miracle of them both. We needed the miracle of them both. The other thing is, as I've traveled a lot around the country, whenever you're in a really older city, there's always a wealthy meeting. By that, I mean in a really wealthy neighborhood and there will be a couple of guys, less now, but um, in my, you know, I'm in my third attempt at recovery now. And if I make November 10th, I'll have 37 years if I make it. And so 37 years ago, 35 years ago, 30 years ago, you go to a, an older city, a wealthy neighborhood. There's always a couple of people that say, oh, well, you know, Bill used to spend summers here or Bill used to visit here. So Bill used to, in the tradition of the Oxford system, go find the influential people in the city, connect with them, create fellowship with them, often from his old Oxford system contacts. Right. You know, you got to remember, uh, the Episcopalian Church and the Oxford system played an enormous role in the creation of AA. I mean, Henrietta Sieberling, the heiress of the Goodyear fortune, which is today's version of I'm Bill Gates' only child. Right. Uh, she introduces Bill Wilson to Dr. Bob Smith. That's how that happens. You know, so, you know, that's, you know, the Oxford system had so much to do with it. Anywho, anywho, back, 
Um, there's there's people much much smarter about all that stuff than I am. I, I can't imagine. I, 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 <laughs> oh no, there's people that know uh, incredible amounts. I know. I I've been fascinated by it because see, my father, my grandfather would talk about it. My uncle would talk about it. The Oxford system energies were still around in the Bronx and in Manhattan um, in the 60s, 70s. And for 80s. for people who are listening, the Oxford system was. AA 1.0. The forerunner. He was they the had, forerunner. They had yeah. meetings. They had rules. They had steps. And I think f- borrowed from that came the evolution of of where Bill Wilson gets the 12 steps. The Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the 100, 100 pioneers um, who created AA, who helped write the big book, who wrote the steps, they were all members of the Oxford group. And one of the most important people, James Houck, was a member of the Oxford group who helped Bill Wilson a lot, who never joined AA, but he was in recovery. And, you know, it's funny when Wally P interviewed him, because Wally P, who wrote Back to Basics, had to do a, a vetting of people when he would meet them. Like, did this guy really know Bill Wilson or right. Dr. Bob or anything? So he had a series of questions. So at one point he asked James Houck, so what AA meetings did you go to with Bill Wilson? And James said, I've never been to an AA meeting. How is that possible? He goes, I never joined AA. I, I, it, it's completely possible. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. It's back, interesting. Back, oh, yeah. back, back to my life. Um, so I'm in, I'm in my father's first AA meeting and um, – you know, you're filled with hope and all that. My father um, never really had the blessing that, that that I have received. And I say that with humility and gratitude and grace. Um, he had what I think probably would be diagnosed now as bipolar one or two or something. And, you know, 50s and 60s and early 70s, they weren't, you know, they didn't have anything for any of that. So um, my first... Um, you know, real attempts um, led into five years of dry time where I lived uh, a lot of the time in uh, my father's boyfriend's houses and traveled around a lot. And I was very blessed. I spent the last two and a half years of dry time in Jackson, Mississippi, where my family here were very, very grateful for them and where I connected with uh, the Lemuria Bookstore and Northminster Church and John Claypool and, and the incredible sacred families that had created Northminster Church, some of whom owned the Sundance restaurant where I was working. And I mean, it was just an incredibly powerful moment in my life. For those listening, Sun. Was it Sundance or Sundance? Sundancer. It's where Bravo. Yeah, it's the original is. Bravo location. Yeah. So, all right, because he's going to factor so large in your story, you mentioned your father's boyfriend. Yeah. Who was that? Oh, I'm sorry. My father's boyfriend was Truman Capote. And what happened was my father abandoned us, and Capote decided to stay and help our family, which is an amazingly generous and courageous and and very lucky thing for me and for us. Um, there wasn't a lot of that happening in the early 70s. There wasn't a lot of uh, people adopting children and doing all that. And, um, you know, so he got me a job with a rock and roll 
promoter who you befriended on the 72 Rolling Stones tour, and suddenly I'm living in Denver. How old was your father when, when he uh, left? W- walked off. Right. I, I'm not good with, with, the, with those kind of numbers. Something about my trauma, I'm not... So was it like pre-18, post-18? Oh, like- no, no. So I'm like, I don't know. I'm like... I'm like 17. Okay. And then he wanders off and, and Capote decides to help us. He puts my mother on the payroll and he helps me gets gets this great job when I'm working for one of the greatest rock and roll promoters that ever lived. And uh, my sister, he's helping her become a model. And then she gets this job with Andy Warhol for a long time. And then she became, she, my sister, an incredibly talented person. Um, she, um, uh, became an incredibly prominent fashion stylist and the uh, fashion editor of Vanity Fair. Eventually, she works in movies. And my sister, um, she entered recovery in a pronounced way, and that helped me get into recovery. Um, so um, it was it was a and I used to constantly put Capote in hospitals, various hospitals. You know, in the 70s and late 80s, late 70s, mid-70s, late 70s, it was hospitals, high-end hospitals, and there were a couple of detoxes. I put them in Silver Hill Hospital in Connecticut a few times, but mostly like New York Hospital, and there was a fancy hospital in Denver, and they would just kind of detox people, you know, and... um you know, I mean, the the memorable thing he said to me once was, I can't go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I am not anonymous. <laughs> and I had to give him that one. I had yeah, to, fair enough. Yeah. Touche. <laughs> I had to give him that one. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll say this, you know, um, his death is how I got sober. You know, when he died... I no longer had uh, this dynamic enabler. Right. So, so about a year later, because my life had been up until that point, various versions of my life would fall apart. I'd hang around with him for a few months and somebody would give me a new life. Yeah. You said that the last time and yeah. I've, I've, I've ruminated over that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're just by proximity. Sure. So we say, well, what about you? I say, yeah, I'll, I'll do something. You know, so I used to drive families around Europe for safety after they cut off Getty's grandson's ear and, you know, all sorts of things that would just happen because you were standing next to somebody. And now, as celebrity has become this enormous, enormous, enormous industry, you can easily see it. Right. You know, you can see. But back then, the world was smaller. Celebrity was smaller. You know, it was it was a different world. So any whom... Um, so, you know, by grace, this is my third recovery that I'm in, and it's all New York City driven, and I would come here and make amends and reconnect a little bit. And then one time I had this wonderful job that I had been elevated enough in this job. I was working in one of the smallest, wealthiest country clubs in the United States, and they gave me an eight-week paid vacation when I had been promoted enough and I came down to visit and went immediately to Lemuria and went to my cousin to visit with my cousin. And uh, Lemuria brought me over to Char. And Char, by the grace of uh, old memories from when I lived here when I was dry, they gave me a job. You know, and I, I 
was here, and it was here that very powerful people in the treatment industry and in recovery, they sat me down and explained to me that I needed to work in behavioral health, needed to change my life entirely. That was given to me by uh, by just people, you know, who just were kind to me. And this is the only success I've ever had. And I have a modest success. I don't have a success like on the level of my brother. My brother has a really powerful success. You know, the Imagine Treatment Center of New Orleans, the Trusted Provider Network. My brother has prestigiously and really skillfully and brilliantly created big things that help a lot of people. You know, so, uh, but this still, this success was given to me by, by folks here. And, uh, you know, that's kind of... The, the, oh, the other thing that I'm that I'm very proud of. Well, <laughs> there's two there's two great achievements actually of my my Mississippi life. I drove the lead car in the first Howlin' Mouth St. Patty's Day parade. Oh. Uh, Thalia Mars husband was the grand marshal, and um, Arthur Mahoney, jazz dancer and prize fighter, and um, and then I played a very small role in the creation of W. Kessel Limited, the con- the company that brought Broadway touring shows here for 40 years. You know, and that was just, just a, a, a couple of things I'm very, I'm very proud of. And just, you know what your life reminds me of who is, uh, Cameron Crowe, just having just a talented person that I don't know Cameron Crowe, but I imagine he must be a likable guy. And things just happen around him, and he tells these great stories. And you know, it—you've really got to distill your life down to writing. It would be almost selfish of you not to. Well, the, the, many kind people have said this to me, and um, and I am going to do that this year. I, just I remember the first time I met you. I was working at Lemuria, and I was like. You just have this natural aura and presence about you that is like you're like a human antibiotic that's got the antibiotic uh, antidepressant. Yeah, this guy that comes uh, with the coolest stories. I mean, really, it's what it's based in love and compassion. You 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 portray love and compassion wherever you go, and whether you do that on purpose or not, it's just something that that kind of ruminates from you. You're, yeah. you're just, um, I, I've, I've never had a conversation with you where fear was the, the, the leading reason as to why you were feeling the way you were. Uh, every time that I've talked to you, it's been a positive uplifting conversation. Um, and, and that's why I, I, I just think you're just an incredible person. Um, and, and like you said, I mean, I think it's absolutely necessary that you write at the very least one book, uh, if not multiple, because I think that, um, I think that, that you have so much to offer this world and it's, it's an incredible honor to, to know you. Oh my God. Well, you're very, very, very kind. It's an enormous amount of luck. I mean, it's really happenstance. It's more reminiscent of Prince Mishkin from the old, uh, story where I just kind of wandered. Yeah, uh, the great book, the great novel. But um, 
But the other thing is this, Capote raised me that way, and my mother, my mother was this- Brothers host, Karamazov. Brothers Karamazov, who just, Prince Mishni just wanders around and great things yeah. happen. And he, so more like, is Miss, it's like Prince Mishkin meets Mr. Magoo. I just kept wandering <laughs> into some, some great lucky things. But, um, but my mother was a source of tremendous love, and her mother was a source of tremendous love. And my uncle of Jackson, Mississippi, George Harrington, and his family, a source of tremendous love. And his brother, my mother's brother, the, the celebrated fire captain of the House on the Hill, one of the most celebrated firehouses of the 60s and 70s in the Northeastern United States, Tommy Harrington, Nothing, just love, just love just oozed out of these people. But Capote also, Capote, you know, he had that persona on TV, but the true persona was kindness, discipline, manners. Discipline? Oh, oh very much so. Now, I, I know, huge drug addiction, huge alcoholism, but if Capote invited you to lunch, he got there half an hour before, there was food on the table, and he was always there before you. It was never, oh, I'm the celebrity. No, no. If you invite somebody to lunch, and he taught me that. I wonder if that was his southern oh, upbringing. Completely. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah. You know, because remember, his, his, his story is fascinating. You know, Monroeville, and then his, his mom wanders into New Orleans and marries this incredibly wealthy Cuban, Joe Capote, and then everything shifts, and he ends up in Greenwich, Connecticut, being looked down upon. <clears throat> because money alone couldn't buy your way into Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, he's going to what he called bugle-blowing uh, prisons, which is what he called the most expensive uh, boarding schools. And they sent me to these bugle-blowing prisons. <laughs> 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 but the summer is in, <clears throat> excuse me, the summer's in Monroeville, which is where he becomes the person that visits in the summer and to kill a mockingbird. You know, because right. that, that was truly what happened. <laughs> so, um, and he always said, if it weren't for his childhood friendship with Harper Lee, he probably would have committed suicide. Really? Yeah. Did they maintain that friendship? I don't know. I don't know. I, I never met her or spent a lot of time with her. So I don't know. I don't know. You know, I met him. He was in decline when I met him. He was in decline. My father... My father and, and all his troubles, um, you know, didn't help him, you know. But um, so for my life, you know, then it becomes uh, I enter behavioral health and I have this phenomenal business partner, Kathleen Butler Stepped, who is m much, much more well-educated than I am and who um, became a fully certified interventionist and therapeutic recovery coach and um, was really the key to the creation of our modest practice. And part of what she believed in was education. So she was always writing checks, helping me take extra trainings and extra events and this and that. And, a, you know, a typical thing was early on, um, I meet Tom Horvath, and he has a booth in one of these huge conferences and Tom Horvath is being ignored by everyone in the conference. And he was one of the co-founders of SMART Recovery. And I got to talking to him a lot. And then um, it came up not long after I did an intervention. And I said, this thing might help this guy. And I called him up and said, hey, listen, I'd like to pay you 
you could trade me for a couple of hours about this. And, you know, I just finished this uh, intervention here in Palm Springs. You're in La Jolla. Can I get a couple hours? He said, oh, no, I'll put you in my PHP recovery houses and we'll keep you here for a few days. We'll all train you. I said, no, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I'm not that wealthy. You know, I, I, I can't really pay for like an elaborate training I'm, uh, this time. He goes, oh, no, we'll do it for free. I said, well, why would you do it for free? He said, at this moment, the treatment industry won't speak to me. Because at that moment, it was 12-step, 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 or heavy psychiatric. Right. So he was launching this new idea. Now it's funny to me because, you know, most websites or treatment centers west of Dallas, they'll mention, uh, we have SMART or we teach SMART, you know. But at that moment, you know, nobody was talking to him. Right. Can you elaborate a little bit for those that don't know what SMART is? SMART is arguably or not that arguably the most successful non-12-step practice for recovery from substance use, self-management and recovery training based in the works of Albert Ellis and in cognitive behavioral therapy and SMART, managing urges, controlling mental health, living a more balanced life, and some of its selling points are there's no spiritual aspect whatsoever, and it has a lot of worksheets. And I have worked with and met people that the balance of the worksheets and the more sort of engineering style, if you are like you're an engineer, like a more orderly style, SMART is very, very soothing and it's very, very helpful to people. And when I offer it to people, I often say, I would like you to add to this going to some sort of community, connecting with community. You know, because I don't think community alone, I, I don't think your mind alone will help you. Your mind alone got you here. So I like a little bit of balance. Sure. A little bit of balance. And one of the, um, <clears throat> I helped a lot of people in Huntsville, Alabama with this, the rocket uh, scientists in Rocket City. And one of them who was, who was very, you know, there's a lot of really bright guys. And um, one of them said to me, Brian, do you know how you can tell which of the engineers you're speaking to is the most outgoing? I said, no, how would that do? They goes, well, he's the guy, when they're standing in a circle, he's staring at the other guy's shoes. <laughs> so, um, but so I, I'm, my belief about recovery, and this is, you know, I didn't come here on my G4 jet or anything. I came here on a old Honda Civic that's in great shape, thanks to Patty Peck. Um, I believe it's not either or, it's yes and. You know, it's maybe some therapy, maybe some trauma work, spirituality, of course, very, very helpful, some mindfulness, and then one of the forms. Right. One of the forms. Maybe it's 12-step, maybe it's not, maybe it's SMART, maybe it's Life Ring, maybe it's Celebrate, maybe it's Refuge or Dharma, and 
some therapy and some smart recovery that that's, you know, that's where I've landed. Right. I've always kind of been that way though. I've always kind of looked for yes. And probably because I've been reading the big book in some form or fashion since I was an Alateen. And the, the thing that I draw from that is, you know, this is my third attempt at recovery. And so I've been looking at this stuff since I was a teenager didn't really have a great blessing and a great relief and a great effort or great success or whatever this is till I was 29. What we can take from that is my most powerful personality strength evidently is a resistance to wisdom. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been enough. looking at yeah. this stuff a long time. Sure, sure. <laughs> I think it's important to note though, it, before we get off the topic of SMART, I used to, when I first got sober, um, Alcoholics Anonymous worked for me. Um, I tried faith-based. I tried other programs, but they didn't work because I wasn't ready to quit. Oh. So, um, and, and, and for Drew, you know, he didn't have success until he finally went to a, a faith-based program, but he was ready to quit at that. So I think it... I, th I think there's 1,000 different paths to recovery, oh, whether it be Smart, Alcoholics Anonymous, another 12-step, uh, faith-based, whatever it is. And if that path works for you and leads you to a happy, uh, well-balanced life, then there's no such thing as a bad path to recovery. So, And, and I, I'll, I'll admit, I was a bit judgmental. When I, when I first got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought that because that guy got sober in church, I, I looked down on him because he didn't do it the way that I was. And it was a completely closed-minded, um, very, very small world that I was living in. Um, and, and today, gratefully for, you know, for to, to um, you know, I, I'm, I'm beyond uh, blessed for, for people like you that um, have gone through and, and done work to experience and learn these other paths to recovery. And then, you know, through this recovery lab podcast, I've really learned a tremendous amount about, uh, the, the different paths to recovery and, and how everybody's path is different. And just because I did it one way, doesn't mean that, that the way that you're doing it is wrong and vice versa. So, um, I, I think it's important for people that are sober, curious or in sobriety or, uh, in active addiction to, to, um, be kind and be loving and tolerant towards all paths because we're all different and we all have different paths to recover. And if it works for you, I'm happy for you. And I'm, and, and it's, that's a beautiful thing to me. Oh, very, very much. And I can remember <clears throat> the great oldest people that I was around when I was a teenager, you know, so when I'm a teenager, people that had 40 years recovery, you know, at that point, their sponsors helped write the big book. Right. You know, I mean, that's just, I, this is real white hair. I, I am in fact old. <laughs> <laughs> so, you earned it. Yeah, I earned it. So, but what they would say when somebody came in and said, hey, I've been doing this, something, they'd say, oh, tell me about that. Is that helping you? Right. You know, they were that way. 
And also the, the 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 attitude around relapse is very very different. When you came back in, they sat you right down. Great, you're back. Come on, we're gonna go make the coffee. It was very different because they were fighting against death. You know, kind of right. sadly, that's kind of revived with with the, the, the this incredibly sad opioid situation. Right. But I can remember vividly that they were like, "Oh, good, you're back." You know that that was it. It was and none of this fear or shame around it. And as far as the many paths, you know, I deeply believe if that's working for you, I wish you all the best. And you know, even even when we look at the original book, because it was in many ways the first book, it does say there are those who stop drinking and never drink again and don't need this. Right. You know, that's one of the sentences. So there are people like that. I was holding on to the, I wanted to be that guy, <laughs> you know, I desperately wanted to, to be able to drink and use like a gentleman. And one of the great sources of wisdom for me is the movie as good as it gets, mm-hmm. you know? And so Greg Kinnear is telling this sad story and Helen Hunt says, everyone's this way. Everyone has horrendous bad stories. Well, no Jack in the back seat. Well, no, actually, sweetheart. <laughs> there are people that have happy stories. Right. They're under a tree by a pond. <laughs> They're having noodle pudding. <laughs> I'm talking noodle pudding here. There are people that have happy stories. Yeah. There's just no one like that in this car. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great movie. <laughs> oh, it has some valuable things. Oh, man. Uh, the other one that I hang on to is, listen, sweetheart, if you're here selling crazy, keep moving. We're all stocked up. <laughs> you know, some great words in that one. Excellent. But I absolutely believe whatever the journey is, if it's working for you, I wish you all the best. I don't ever say, I know what you need to do. Right, right. You know, even all my years as an interventionist, it, we, we were very much trained, and I was of the, of the feeling, this is how everyone's feeling. You know, there's, there's been DUIs or there's been tremendous loneliness. I was never, I'm the diagnostic genius and I am diagnosing you. It was never, it was, let's have a family loving meeting and, and let's see what the, what the truth is. Right. You know? I'm feeling a little convicted because I will whoop out, you need to so-and-so, I'll yeah. whoop that out fast. <laughs> and that's pull, your path and that's okay. You need okay. to pull your head out of your ass. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. That's working for you. Right. Yeah, it's working. And that's why Al-Anon is so beautiful. <laughs> and let me tell you, AA, ACA is as big a part of my life as anything else. That's the adult, adult children of alcoholics. alcoholics. You know, I was so lucky in my third year of this recovery, my sponsor put me in Al-Anon for a year first, made me take a coffee commitment because he knew if I took a coffee commitment, I'd show up. <laughs> and then ACA, and when we did that, therapy and EMDR, and that aspect, I'm sure that's why you're talking to me today. Had I not done EMDR, had I not entered family recovery and alley on. Tell people a little bit about adult children of alcoholics. Oh, absolutely. How does that dynamic work? What so, is the general, I'm sorry, no. what, what is the general impact on children of the, what I guess is the, the bipolar schizo effective nature of having uh, an alcoholic as a parent? Absolutely. Good question. Good question. Good question. Again, I'm so honored to be with you kind fellows. I really am. This feels like a a sacred safe moment here. So 
ACA, also known now in therapeutic lingo as a CE, adverse childhood experiences is the therapeutic language for it, which is appropriate and valuable. It's kind of like DBT. DBT, I spoke to Marshall Linehan once. I said, look, you're healing enormous amounts of people from bipolar and from borderline and from many, many things. I use it. It reduces anxiety. But really, DBT is Buddhism with billing codes so we can build the insurance companies. <laughs> she said, pretty close, pretty close. That's uh, rational mind and emotional mind. That's right, and, and the wise mind yeah, in the middle okay. and, and the grounding technique. So fabulous. So ACA, it's a fascinating thing. As we know, if, if you take behavioral health challenges, it might include substances, it might not. It might include physical violence, it might not. I believe adult children and those things that help us recover from a complex childhood, sometimes it's from, and I'm the poster boy of the, the most typical, typical, typical person. My father, my earliest memory is being beaten when I'm in my crib, and my father had lots, I, I was beaten a lot. And, but I find the people that had quiet parents who were of the fifth or sixth generation of quiet parents who simply practiced an emotional reserve. So there was a, just a gentle silence, a gentle lack of nurturing. There was not a lot of expression of love. There was not a lot of expression of nurture and perhaps they still were there for every football game and every ballet recital, but they were like this. That's also abandonment. That's also a wound when there's just an absence of nurture, an absence of effusive love. And it's an innocent one. They're simply living their lives the way they were treated, the way they were treated. This is sometimes called the avalanche of the ancestors. It's just a quiet... Passive trauma. Passive trauma. Well said. Passive trauma. And a passive, just a passive lack of being emotionally fed, emotionally reassured. And then there's everything else in the, in the from, from my monosyllabic thug beatings as a kid in the Bronx to this. There's all sorts of other enormous complexities. What happens for me, and I believe this is available, is a gentle rebuilding of learning how to love and nurture yourself, learning how to parent yourself, learning how to heal yourself, and then you're more present spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically as a human as a parent, as a sibling, as an employee, as a friend. It's a healing. And again, I want to stress that innocent part of it. You know, our parents didn't order their parents who didn't order their parents. And a lot of these things, perfectionism, workaholism, these things came naturally as survival techniques. How are we going to survive? We had to immigrate here. We had to create a company in, 
in order to survive, we had to be perfectionist and we had to be successful and we had to be workaholic. But these are disciplines, some very, very old, some Calvinistic or, or Dutch or survival or early uh, immigrants and founders of this country were, had, a, had a strict strictness because that's what we did. Right. So ACA, <clears throat> a big part of my life, um, they, they help us heal from that. And the, the great thing is if there's four children, two of them were deeply affected by it. The other two had a great ride, didn't bother them at all. That sort of quiet lifestyle, that sort of lack of effusive hugging, didn't bother them. Two, four children, two it affects, two it doesn't. The other thing that, that I've experienced is trauma if there's four children at a traumatic event, all four have a different version of the event. They all remember it differently. Sometimes drastically differently, sometimes uh, slightly differently, the same event. Right. Eyewitness testimony is unreliable. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so for me, it really is, you know, when I like to get up, I get up to Magnolia Village with the Thich Nhat Hanh people when they have friends at 12-step days. And um, the walking meditation has been a big part of my anxiety reduction and my trauma recovery. And that led into me building labyrinths, you know, which is my hobby. Um, we mentioned this the last time, how I've often seen your Facebook post, like, went for a walk today, felt safe. And I've thought, isn't that just the, the perfect distillation of recovery? Felt safe, felt secure. Uh, I wasn't subject to some ridiculous fear stemming from a childhood trauma. And I wasn't working myself up, you know, lathering myself up into a comparison tornado of what do I have versus what they have or if I were better looking, if it was the, if I was, if I just had, if I just had, you know, these ridiculous, absolutely fantastic milestones that we put out there. Oh, if, if we can just do this, if I can do if talk about a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And even like in sobriety, like I, I still, there was a, like there were, especially in early sobriety, I, I just, I wasn't spiritually fit and I didn't have any sort of, I wasn't really working a program. I was dry for all intents and purposes. And I, I would looking back, it's very clear to me that there was that, the proverbial hole in our soul that we talk about. I, I didn't, I, I don't believe that I was able to see it at the time. Um, but, uh, one thing that I, that I tried desperately to fill that hole with was, was sex, uh, that, that physical intimate. I, I just felt like if I had more of that, then I would be okay. And everything else would fall into place. Um, and it wasn't until I, I sat down fully and, and started working a program and, ultimately getting involved and becoming at peace with my past that I was able to, you know, lean heavily on God to fill that hole instead of having, you know, external things try to fill that hole, which for me, the, every attempt was, was a complete failure. Uh, and it just led to, to more harms being done. Um, so when do you remember, was there a point in your life where, um, 
do you recall, I guess I should say, was there a point at which you, where a switch was flipped and your past, all the past trauma, um, hard feelings, difficult times, the switch flipped and those things became profitable to you to be able to help other people who go through that? Was there a, def- a definitive moment where you were able to use your past for good instead of having that past hold you back. Yeah, it was part of my miracle on November 10th, 1985, you know, when, when I got up off my mother's couch and went to a meeting for the first time in my life, I was telling the truth all the time and I no longer wanted to use substances. Mm -hmm. And then a mixture of 12 step life, good psychiatry, EMDR, Al-Anon, ACA, and great spirituality. I was very fortunate. There were some great people from Fordham that were around. There was a men's prayer group that met on the beach. and But I, I didn't figure that I could help people professionally until I was told that. You know, and one of the great things that I was very lucky about because of my grandfather and my uncle, I always practiced silence and that's not the trend these days that much. It's a, you know, read this book, read that book, read this book, read two or three thoughts. And that's very, very good and very, very powerful and very, very healing. But a small practice of silence was the way the first 20, 30 years of AA was practiced. And, a little bit of silence. There's an old meeting in Jan Hus Church, one of the older buildings in Manhattan, certainly one of the oldest meetings. And it's an 11-step meeting that starts with a brief reading, 12 minutes of silence, and then everybody shares. And when you go to some of the oldest meetings, they'll always have an 11-step meeting like that with silence. So silence helped me enormously. Another lucky, lucky thing, I accidentally became connected with Tom Catton. Tom Catton helped write some of the basic text of the Narcotics Anonymous book. And he has a book called The Mindful Addict, which is about silence in how to recover from narcotics and drug addiction. He's one of the great leaders of NA. He's always at their international and national conferences, Tom Catton and silence and then as you know the 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 Jungian synchronicities would have it one day Johnny introduces me to Anshin Thomas who wrote At Hell's Gate a Thich Nhat Hanh Buddhist and he told me about the very early days of Magnolia Grove in Batesville and he was a walking monk he's a Thich Nhat Hanh guy so silence is a big part of it and Walking meditation, I learned that through him and through Batesville, Magnolia Village. And then that led me to trying some labyrinths and that came on. But I would offer, I know for me, beginning the morning with a prayer or S-M-A-R-T, you write an intentionality, some silence, then connecting to some recovery or some community and then helping others. I know that's kind of the framework for me. And, and 
in my private practice as a recovery coach, as a life coach, as a trauma recovery coach, when I do intensives, when I facilitate retreats, those that's kind of the bare parameters and then within which uh, miracles occur. Amen. So the idea of silence, I think, is is very, very, very important and and those books are very, very helpful. I remember I had Tom Catton fly in from Hawaii once and give a workshop in Memphis, and uh, he's talking about the silence and all that. And then he talked about early AA, they practice silence. And, and somebody said, well, I read my book. He said, oh, the books are groovy. The books are groovy. <laughs> and, and Tom Catton is just this old hippie living on Maui. And as I drove back to the airport the next day, I said, Tom, you and Austin Powers are the only people allowed to say groovy, but you are allowed to say groovy. Where it comes out well. Yeah, because yeah, he, he was real for him. You know, but um, it's interesting. I took him around to a bunch of meetings and an interesting N.A. thing that I had never seen. Uh, and this is because, you know, their authors are still alive. Um, when somebody like that is in an AA, NA room, and he wasn't telling anybody, but I was telling people, because I always went to AA, NA, and Cocaine Anonymous. I always went to all three the first years on and off, and I still pop in on and off. Um, they have the author signed their basic textbook, their big book in NA, on the page that he helped write. Oh, wow. Kind of a cool. Now he didn't tell him, but I told him. Look at this guy. Blah, blah, blah. He went, "Oh yeah, he speaks at the conferences." Yeah, and they went out to their car. They got their books. They had him sign his page that because he wrote, I think, three or four pages of the basic text. Wow, Tom Catton, great guy, tremendous guy, just a groovy a, guy. It sounds. Like. Oh, oh no, absolutely is <laughs> Ryan man. Hey, <laughs> and just but this, I mean, incredible, and you know, clean. Like I mean, I think he got clean. Eight, six or eight months after it was invented. You know, wow. that and you, you know the old stories. They they sold the, their blood like to plasma labs to help pay to print the first basic text of N.A. That's how they paid for the first Wow, printing. I didn't know that. Oh, gotta, yeah. You got to do what you got Oh, N.A. Do. people are very real. They, they somehow, they just, something about my trauma, my recovery, they used to let me come even though I didn't have biker clothing and I didn't look right. I looked like Beaver Cleaver's father had wandered in the wrong room. <laughs> so, it's like, who's that guy? Oh, he's all right. All right. <laughs> everybody else is he's just He's with like, us. Yeah, everybody else is getting, you know, they look like they're getting on bikes. Half of them were. Half of them were in Hell's Angels and stuff. And, um. The origins of NA and just the prohibition against heroin use oh. is, has always interested me. Oh, it was, it was terrible. New York, you know, it's 80s. I'm in recovery. There's one treatment center in Long Island that'll help heroin addicts. And that's insane. Yeah. I mean, I was completely confused by that. You know, that's how I ended up. There was a thing called Junkie Jam they would have once a year. And... um I got to go to a couple of those again, just accidental grace, synchronicity of grace by, by the, the spirit of the universe and Carl Jung synchronicity and Clapton shows up, you know, cause he's an NA guy. Right. Yeah. Can I sit him in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can sit in. Yeah. yeah come yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> NA, you know, it's, it's so cool. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time. Damn, it goes too fast. I know, but I I want our listeners and viewers to um, uh, 
know about a, a new little project that you have going on. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that. Um, you have a new podcast. I have uh, a now, podcast, which I'm so honored to have. Yeah, what's that so, called? Talking Triumphs. Okay, okay. Triumph Talks. All right. And I'm very excited to do this, and I'm very honored for the technical help, the 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 podcast producers are just incredibly sophisticated and they make me sound better than I am. And I'm very new at this. You know, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm learning a little bit more as I go. And I was so honored to have Morgan Grace as my first guest. She's such a powerful person in uh, Texas and in really ceremony and complex recovery things. And then Amanda Copeland of Copeland Consulting, incredible work with the in-home eating disorder coaches nationally. Having a podcast for me, I hope I can help other people. And I hope it's valuable. And um, I'm, I'm just so grateful to have it. It's very new for me. It's one of these things, like writing the book, people have been begging me to do this for many, many years. And I have, <clears throat> I have a version of procrastination or laziness is what they call it. And it's not good to have that. But as a trained interventionist, I have special skills. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I, you, but I so, so graced. Well, just an amazing thing is wonderful. You guys invited me on and, and I said, okay, this is safe. This is good. And I'm so great. I'm so grateful for this. Um, it's really cool. Um, it's reconnected with a bunch of people nationally who they're so happy to see me doing this. Well, I can say from personal experience, I've listened to both episodes, the, uh, episode one and episode two. And I have to say when I'm listening to it, um, I, there's something about your voice and how your guests react to your voice. That is that this is incredibly, I feel at peace when I'm listening to it. So I wish you the most unbelievable success with it. And I want to encourage you to, to keep moving forward. Cause I think that you're going to help a lot of people with that podcast. Oh, I'm, I'm in, I'm all in now. And you know, that idea of doing podcast, there's so much more to learn, so much more to do. And I have all these cool people that want to be on it. I'm so amazed. These super busy people, I call them up, they go, Oh yeah, for your show. Yeah, I'm in, That's I'll, awesome. I'll do it. You know, and there's these. You'd cool be surprised. People. people are quick to say yes. Yeah, <laughs> they really are. Yeah, my friend Leonard Bushell, the great film recovery film guy out in L.A. Oh yeah, I'll be on, Brian. You know, all these people that 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 surprise me. They're all like, oh, I'll be on. Yeah, sure. Well, look, I hate to to. I do want to end our podcast yes. in the customary fashion. Yes. So uh, I'm gonna put to you my favorite two questions. Okay. What do you do poorly? In your recovery, I don't exercise enough physically, but I'm getting better at that. I'm doing qigong more regularly, and I'm doing a little more aggressive. There's aggressive breath work, which I never really did. Now I'm doing that more, like Wim Hof. Uh, I don't. It's 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 like that. Yes. Okay. Yes. It's progress. Not I, I don't. I don't get in the ice, but um, yes. So that that's something I'm working on. Good. What do you do well in your recovery? Well, I'll have to, I'll have to um, respond 
my dear, dear, dear friend Carver B. Um, Shout out to Carver. Hey, Carver. What's who up, who homie? Carver, whoop, whoop. Carver B. has said to me that I'm very good helping people in their early days. He says, he says you're really good at that. That's a blessing that you haven't forgotten what it was like in the beginning. Absolutely. Oh, no, I stay close to it. Yeah. I stay. Oh, because let me tell you, today's the day for me not to pick up. Yeah. Right. Amen. Today is the day for me not to pick up. <laughs> That's <laughs> like a that. good way of putting that. Today is that day for me. <laughs> oh, it really, it really is. I love it. Let me tell you, I go have a Bud Light line this afternoon. Nobody's going to remember who used to have long-term recovery. Right. Right. I'll be gone. I shared that with you. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, the, 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 the fact I enjoy my life so much now, it's really quite something. That's, I think, the, the message I, I want to get to people. I don't do this. Some people do this because they are advancing spiritually and they're very much that way. I keep staying in recovery because I'm having more and more fun every year. <laughs> right. I'm doing this because it's working for me. I'm having a right. blast. Right, right, right. Because it's working. Yeah. yeah. I think and that's the key. Yeah. It works if you work it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm having I'm having fun. That's why I'm doing it. I'm not one of these. There are guys who are very, very well, you know, this is, no, I'm having a blast. I mean, I'm, I'm building labyrinths. I mean, who the hell does that? <laughs> Winners. Winners do that. <laughs> Amen. Well, look, thank you again. Yes. Not only did you do this once, you did it twice. Yeah. But thank you for being you and thank you for sharing your life and your story. I'm deeply, deeply honored. And thank you for helping me and having, helping me have a podcast. Thank you. Sure. Absolutely. Well, we're grateful for you and for everything that you do for the recovery community. Amen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll see you next week. I don't mind.